Do you ever wonder about what might have happened if dinosaurs had inherited the Earth? Like, if the asteroid had never hit, what kind of world would they have made? Since the dawn of human evolution, we have always been a species that hasn't just tried to advance our capabilities, but has ruminated about what we are capable of doing. In a word, we have self-consciousness. So we do not just create, we also think about the consequences and the ramifications of what we create, whether that's a wheel, a painting, or an atomic bomb. Enlightenment thinkers call this humanism, and they use the term to talk about our capacity to perfect ourselves. And yet, we are also aware that within our powers of creation may lie the seeds of our own extinction. In this episode, we speak to artist Nicholas Party and thinker Thomas Moynihan about the idea of humanism. What kind of world is humanity capable of making? Is humanity destined for perfection or for destruction? For doom or for glory? And what happens to us when we begin to imagine a world without us, without humans? Welcome to Edge of Reason. A new limited series podcast produced by Atlantic Rethink, the Atlantic's branded content studio, in partnership with Hauser & Wirth, a home to visionary modern and contemporary artists. Each week, we'll transcend the boundaries of time and thought, channeling the spirit of the Enlightenment to delve into the obsessions that underpin the work of some of today's leading artists. Joining us today is Nicholas Party, a Swiss-born, Brooklyn-based figurative painter who has achieved critical acclaim for his familiar yet unsettling landscapes, portraits, and still lifes that tap into themes of humanity, evolution, climate change, and extinction. And also here with us is Thomas Moynihan, a scholar who thinks about human contingency, the history of how humans think about our existence, our evolution, and our possible extinction. He currently works as a visiting researcher at Cambridge University's Center for the Study of Existential Risk. Nicholas, welcome to Edge of Reason. Hi, it's great to be here. <laughs> In your work, you construct still lifes, uh, portraits, landscapes, um, imaginary worlds. And often these worlds, uh, they might be devoid of humans. Um, where are you hoping to take viewers when you create these imaginary worlds? I mean, that's always a hard question when you're an artist to ask, oh, what do you want to bring the viewer? Because I don't think when you make arts, you, I think you want to have an open objects for yourself and, you know, probably for the viewer. So like, I think when you try to create something like a landscape, in my case, for example, I've been always trying to basically create those very clear, uh, you know, let's say a cave or a mountain landscape, thinking it's very identifiable, but also I'm trying to create that uh, room that people can come in and like basically put in that kind of symbolic image, like whatever they, they come with. If you paint mountains, for example, like everybody can see or relate to it in, in whatever they want. And so it's kind of, then of course there's my, my, like my own kind of uh, investigation of why I paint 
this that way and my relationship to let's say mountains or cave or trees or those kind of portraits and that's a kind of a day-to-day uh, ever-changing relationship because you know like your perspective shifts it's an ever-changing also you forget things and that also makes you kind of see differently and i think it's kind of ever-changing having a relationship to those themes that's, that's happening so i want to come back to ask you about some of the subjects you've chosen as of late like you've been painting wildfires you've been painting dinosaurs which is something I know Thomas thinks quite a lot about too. So I wanted to bring in Thomas here. And Thomas, you're someone who seems to spend a lot of time thinking about the biggest questions around humanity. Like, are we headed for doom? Are we headed for redemption? How did you come to this work? <laughs> yeah, so um, that's a good question. So yeah, so I study mainly what people thought in the past often about the future. So I study the history of the future in some sense. But the main thing I'm interested in is just how beliefs change over time. I'm interested in how humans have oriented themselves towards the universe over time. And the main thing that I find interesting about that is that looking to the past, we realize just how otherwise beliefs have been and therefore how different they can be or could be still. So what I mean by that is the contingency of of what we believe about ourselves and the universe our beliefs, but also our existences, uh, the ways our societies are formed, uh, the way we act with each other, but even the existence of us entirely being contingent. Those are the things that interest me. And so to actually answer your question of how I came to that, um, so you know, I'm going to cerebralize it a bit rather than just saying that it's because I watched Jurassic Park as a kid. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I was I very early from a very young age. I was fascinated by prehistoric creatures, particularly uh, the ones from the Cambrian. Their names are just as weird as they look. So Opabenia, Anomalocaris, Hallucinogenia, very weird animals, and I was obsessed with them as a kid. And it's testament to how different life can be, how alien things in the past were. And then as I became older, I ended up doing an English degree through chance more than design. And I realized you could apply that similar thought of just seeing the sheer vastness of difference and variability in the past, not just to animals and life forms, but also to human beliefs. So I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a definition of uh, this enlightenment idea that we're trying to probe today, this idea of humanism. The way that I like to think of it is that it sees the human as a self-asserting being and a self-fashioning being. There's this long tradition, again, going very far back, of noticing that humans seem to lack some of the physical prowess or endowment, the kind of strength or speed or stability of other animals. But what we lack in that department, we seem to make up for in our behavioral flexibility and inventiveness we seem to lack an essential nature. We don't rely on rigid, unchanging instincts. That lack is a form of plasticity. It's a form of freedom. And so there's this long tradition of seeing the human as this self-fashioning creature that makes itself through its own artifice. And so I see this as a nice way of defining our freedom. Um, You know, it comes from a form of lack. Hmm. Well, you've written this amazing book called X-Risk, How Humanity Discovered Its Own Extinction. And... uh, you talk about this idea of existential risk. So first off, what is existential risk? And how does it relate to this idea of humans' freedom to be able to create? 
So yeah, the term existential risk, is, I guess it's become quite contentious in some ways, but at heart, uh, all it means is that it's an acknowledgement of the potential that there are certain events that could lead to a world without humans. Mm. All right. So this is where we bring in the dinosaurs, I think. <laughs> um, Nicholas, you've been working on new paintings uh, of dinosaurs. And, and Thomas, you said that this inquiry began for you as, as a child uh, watching Jurassic Park. Nicholas, let's start with you. Why have you started painting dinosaurs? I found it like there's something interesting that we could talk about, about why children's have a fascination for an animal that was extinct. What I've been first interested in in the dinosaurs is kind of a little bit of this maybe force revolution in terms of uh, of basically the description, the illustrations of dinosaurs. Of course, we found dinosaurs with, with only the bones. So there's a, there's a, there's a great uh, space there for imagination and creates, you know, how did they look from the outside? In the early days, dinosaurs are, you know, really like illustrated and described as like, heavy, dum-dum, very slow. And it's obviously reassuring probably for humans to have those old kind of creature that uh, <laughs> that went very like, you know, is stupid. Uh, and then, you know, they have this kind of suddenly coming up of age, that's probably like the peak of Jurassic Park where they're very lean, super muscular, kind of smart, but they look kind of more or less all of them pretty kind of aggressive. Uh, and then obviously lately with the discovering of the you know this bird idea that they're very likely like dinosaur were basically like the you know the ancestors of birds and the idea of feathers were probably in, in a lot of them and especially in those small little hands could be like little wings and also as you will find a, a skeleton of the camel you will probably not know that they have this bump uh, all the fats, all the different elements, if you only have the skeleton. So there's suddenly like it didn't emerge into how dinosaurs are, are, are viewed now as a, a very kind of maybe humanist kind of way to see them. Suddenly they're like, they have kindness. They're like, you know, they love each other. They also hunt together. I've seen all this somehow. There was, there's another layer of that that I'm going to add is that's the arts, like as an academic and the fields, uh, contrary to like illustrations, was never interested in dinosaurs, and I've and I've been I've, I found that very fascinating. <laughs> you know, illustration of dinosaurs date like mid nineteenth century mm. to these dates, and so that's a pretty good spectrum of artistry. Like, I find it kind of interesting. Again, like children love dinosaurs, artists they don't care. They think it's like maybe not our problem. So somehow I was like, you know what, I, I want to try to approach that themes, and also especially because on now we have. For, Again, like this idea of the dinosaur not being like, oh, well, they're going to go instinct because they were just stupid. So it was natural they go instinct. Now we know more or less that it was basically pure randomness. <laughs> they went away. Thomas, you, you actually just wrote about this. Uh, I'm really excited to hear about what you're thinking about all the things that Nicholas is talking about here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm sitting here loving, loving it and applauding silently. <laughs> so yeah, I just wrote a piece on the title of it was Don't Denigrate the Dinosaurs. It was for Neumer magazine. And it was from, you know, as, as we've said, I had this, you know, and I think it's relatively normal, as Nicholas acknowledged, this kind of childhood fascination, admiration for these dinosaurs. And so over the years, as I've been studying the history of science and paleontology, etc., I was just shocked by how mean people were about dinosaurs, <laughs> particularly around, there's a period called the uh, Great Dinosaur Rush, which was kind of the 1880s to the early 1900s. And it was a period when 
that there were these two American paleontologists who just hated each other's guts and were competing with each other in this kind of race to find the best dinosaurs. And it's the period when all of the most iconic ones that we now cherish and love were discovered, Triceratops, Stegosaurus, Allosaurus, etc. But these people that dedicated their entire lives to studying these beasts were so mean about them. They were so mm. denigrating. Um, even so, talking of paleo art, the great, I would say, he's probably the best historical paleo artist, Charles R. Knight. Again, someone that spent his life dedicated to drawing these animals. He referred to them as just stupid, ugly, uh, too ugly to exist. And so I, you know, I was interested in what's, where does all this come from? And so, you know, it's rooted ultimately in this old assumption about evolution that extinction works invariably or even always to weed out the lesser, the less worthy, the unfit, the maladaptive, so that they can be replaced with the better, which leads to this very progressive idea of evolution, kind of this upsurge towards perfection. Mm, well, you also mentioned in your article that there's a really interesting parallel at this particular point in history to the so-called Indian Wars in the US and the genocide there, as well as the rise of eugenics and the debasing of non-European cultures from the late 19th century on up into the 20th century. Absolutely. As, as much as, you know, the kind of talking about the dinosaurs, it's fun, it's buoyant. This history is very serious, though, because these uh, European scientists writing this stuff, again, in the decades straddling 1900, they used it to uh, sanitize the genocide of indigenous people across the world as the outcome of inevitable, you know, natural selection rather than a culpable political decision. They feigned sorrow and they feigned regret uh, in Europe. They could say, sad as it sad as it is, this is just the inevitable result of the cosmic process that the lesser always gets wiped away. This history is blood drenched to a degree, um, and I think that again there was very much motivated reasoning going on in propping up the dinosaurs as this precursor example of doomed to go the way of the dodo. Hmm. Nicholas, you do a lot of of landscapes, and these are these are not sort of the triumphant. Uh, landscapes of of the 19th century. These are really uncanny types of landscapes. And more recently as well, you've been doing paintings of of wildfires. Uh, and so I'm wondering how that fits maybe into what you know Thomas is talking about here in terms of existential risk. The history of landscapes, at least in Western culture, is more or less a history of humans' intervention in landscapes. It's really only kind of very recently that actually this landscape without human presence in it. For a long time, obviously, the natural world and the wild wilderness is, a, is, is an actual danger. Now it feels like, oh, obviously, it's <laughs> we are the danger, not the nature. This idea of like painting a landscape without human traces is more like basically the idea of nature, which I find it very fascinating because from the get-go in the Western kind of biblical story, like the nature... Perfect is without human. You know, there's Adam and Eve, and they kind of part it, and it's a complete symbiont with the animals, with the trees. But as soon as they become human, basically having sex, <laughs> like everything falls apart. And basically, like the entire goal of almost humans is to go back, and still to this day, it was like a nature without us. We know that uh, we're basically damaging the walls and the landscapes around us. We're not the first invasive species you know in in the world that destroy everything uh, the ecosystem around it but we definitely the first one to be conscious of it and that's fascinating human seems to do it and you regret it but keep doing it and that's like a very 
you know, in terms of Darwinian evolutions, why it's that? <laughs> like, why we, why we like destroy everything? We're conscious of it and we don't like it. It's kind of an interesting, interesting part of Homo sapiens. Yeah, I mean, all species are invasive to some degree. <laughs> I mean, if you're <laughs> going to put your Darwinian lenses on, but we're not even the first species to cause mass extinction or to perturb the global climate. Um, it's very plausible that a very long, very long time ago, when life first evolved photosynthesis in the form of uh, cyanobacteria, these kind of very crude towers of like microorganisms uh, called stromatolites that fossilized. And we know that these were big colonies of cyanobacteria. They uh, photosynthesize. One of the products of that is oxygen. And the atmosphere before this point didn't have much oxygen in it. And so they oxygenated the atmosphere, which caused what some people call the oxygenation holocaust. It destroyed tons of life throughout the globe. Now, the difference between us and the stromatolites is that they definitely weren't aware of what they were doing. We are. Humans have the computer simulations like that can model planetary climates. And I would say that I'm not saying this to pat ourselves on the back because the fact that we've become self-conscious of it hasn't stopped the wholesale destruction of ecosystems. We're still doing it at pace. Um, however, the history, and I think this is one where the history of ideas can come in and have a, uh, you know, I wouldn't say vindicatory, but a, a hopeful message is that the history of ideas shows that we've only just really started to grapple with these things. And so I would say it's probably at least premature to dismiss humanity as this species that is kind of doomed to only vandalize the world in which it lives. And you know, two further things I would say on that. The first thing is that this view, which I think has become quite attractive in our day of mass extinction and climate change, climate crisis, is this idea that there is this natural world and all that human agency can do is to denigrate the value of it and to destroy it, to vandalize it. That just makes us the center of the universe again, but in a negative way rather than a positive way. We're the protagonist of history, but we're just fallen in the way that Augustine thought that humanity was tainted with the original sin. So that's one thing. Further thing is that to kind of loop back to the dinosaurs, people were really mean about them. They had all these horrible beliefs that propped up other horrible beliefs elsewhere. But from the 80s onwards, we found just overwhelming evidence. Dinosaurs died because of a chancy impact. That asteroid is the avatar of chance and contingency. Uh, it's not the handmaiden of adaptation or perfection. It's pure chance. It smashed into the globe. It didn't need to. It could have gone otherwise. And if it hadn't done so, we probably wouldn't be here today. But I think that we should uh, take that lesson of the dinosaurs, not to prejudge the fates of other animals, and apply it to ourselves. Again, that comes back to this question of humanism. Ironically and paradoxically, there is no such thing as the human as an essential category, because we invent ourselves. And so we've only just started to grapple with problems at this scale and have only just started to figure out the severity of our actions in a way that the stromatolites never even came close to. So I'd say, yeah, it's premature to dismiss us as this uh, creature tainted by original ecological sin. Potentially, we might be able to figure things out in the future. I, I like to cling to that hope, naive as it might be.
I really kind of lean on that. And it's probably also maybe an random quality of our species is to be in a way like very doom-like and very pessimistic, but uh, we're also very optimistic. I'm, I am a very optimistic person. It will be silly in a way to say, oh, we're going straight to the wall because I think we are in a way capable of change and sometimes very positive change. Uh, and, and it's true, there's many examples in the history of, of humanity that, uh, you know, slavery was, was, was existing and it, it's not anymore. But it shows that basically human adaptation can also be seen with a positive lens. And to be honest, also like in our brief time on Earth, uh, in all those few decades that we have here, like uh, it, it's nice to have a little bit of positive anyway, like a thing that <laughs> drives, drives us to go somewhere anyway. Like if it's only negative, like what are you going to do? Like, Yeah, I completely agree. I believe that the fact that we're so pessimistic is ironically a cause for optimism. We now know that climate change is this awful thing that will destroy ecosystems and destabilize human society in uh, ways that are unequally distributed and unfairly distributed based on historic use of fossil fuels. But a couple of generations ago, when scientists first started grappling with the greenhouse effect, so roughly 100 years ago, loads of scientists arrived at the idea that they were like, okay, cool, we can make the environment warmer by just burning all this stuff. Let's just burn everything. S some people were like, okay, maybe we don't know how this works. Maybe we should be careful with what's going on here. But I found an engineer, an American engineer from the 20s, saying all nations of the earth should, should unite uh, in immolating all of their seams of coal. Uh, to pump the atmosphere with carbon dioxide because he thought that that would uh, create this Edenic climate that's like clement, warm, and good for everyone. Thomas, when you see Nicholas's work, what kinds of questions arise for you? I felt kind of, what's the word, heartened to see that my interpretation might be borne out by Nicholas's own sense of what he's up to. It's that ability to imagine a world without us is the kind of acme thought of contingency that everything could be otherwise up to the point in which we don't even exist to even represent or think about the world so i really enjoy that and even your, even your portraits have this kind of a human sense to them um i don't know how, how else to describe it uh where yeah it's almost like there aren't even any humans in your portraits sometimes i i, I mean that's probably quite a controversial statement to make so i'll, I'll uh, yeah i'll leave it there but uh, yeah what are you trying to do uh in these portraits that the gaze seems to be the most important piece, um, but the the expressions are usually very neutral uh, on your subjects. So I wanted to ask about that. When I started, to be honest, I, I didn't know what I was doing, and I think artists often uh, work that way. They're like, you know, they have an intuition. It was the same with the dinosaurs; still the same. And you kind of want, while you're walking create basically a, a, an object which is let's say a character in in your life that you want to have a conversation with but with the with the faces they, they just appeared and what happens is very quickly i discovered that i was very um intrigued by the portraits in in kind of greek antiquity in greek kind of sculptures a lot of them they really kind of you know some of them really don't clearly don't look like anybody that exist and what is also fascinating is women and men, especially when they're young, look more or less the same. They have almost the same idealist feature. Uh, I found it interesting with bit, like to jump like you know, a few thousand years later was this you know AI and kind of filter in Instagram where basically like any kind of camera or any filter makes our face looks slightly less human and more ideal. You know, moving like wrinkle or lights, uh, little spots, whatever it is, in 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 our kind of faces. So basically, I think my portraits, they were born between those, you know, I live in that world, obviously, like, and I'm kind of embedded into it. And I was looking at those 
you know, older kind of uh, depicting of humans. And they basically like kind of represents like the idea or the ideal idea of what a human face is. But obviously that's, that, that character is in a way emptied. They look very directly at you, but also they really look past you. Like it's almost like a, yeah, like a ghostly or spirits figure. So they, they have been having this, this presence in, in my practice for a while. What do they evoke for you, Thomas, in terms of thinking about the kinds of questions that you're engaged in every day? Uh, well, one thing that just occurred to me just listening to Nicholas talk now is there's this really fascinating cluster of connotations around the idea of perfection that goes back to the ancient Greeks. Aristotle at some point says that we use perfect to also mean something that has fulfilled itself in the sense of a death, right? Because the perfect was the culmination, the end point, the fulfillment of all the thing is. And for human life, that is death. So there's this w really intimate tangle of uh, semantics around perfection where it actually is often seen as quite deadly. Mm. This idea that you know humanity will perfect itself out of existence by creating this kind of computational god, all of this stuff. I think it's exactly kind of what I'm trying to evoke as a feeling when, when you look at the portraits and Thomas was trying to describe very interestingly this idea of perfection that is the death of human. Even in Greek, they had this, you know, like uh, in Egypt, they had this idea and maybe God was representing that There's, there was like a higher power, which was maybe the ultra intellectual idea of humans that will see us with our like lust and, you know, anger and like, you know, all this kind of like senses that are like, this is like, you know, completely useless. Why we just don't have a human being that is perfect, that doesn't have all those defects that human has. One of the reasons I'm interested in the history of ideas is because you it's a way of inhabiting different worlds, but they were real. Like these people inhabited completely different universes to us. And to try and step outside of ours and go back into theirs is just, it's similar to fiction in some sense and how bizarre it is. God was this dictator. He dictated time, uh, fate, everything. Everything was orchestrated from the outermost uh, layer of heaven where, where God resided. It's a form of authoritarianism. And so these people occupied this universe where there was you know, in reality, but also in conception, barely any leeway or room for human agency. And so this, given that, you can see how radical the idea of humanism is. And so I think that we live in an era now where there's a different authoritarianism of reality. And it's, you know, the picture of the human that is presented to us as inescapable, inevitable, uh, product of strict ironclad necessity that we are these kind of self-interested, uh, you know, um, selfish Darwinian agents, the kind of homo economicus. So, you know, the humanism of our age could be a rebellion against that in some sense that, you know, clearly this paradigm is uh, self-destructive to a degree, or at least precarious to a unlivable degree. So I think resurrecting the radicality of humanism as a rebellion against the powers that be, um, a way of kind of dissolving arbitrary power and the corruptions thereof. I think, you know, I find that an exciting idea. Last question then actually here, and this one's, this one's uh, for Nicholas. Do you think that art has a role to play in preventing the extinction of humanity? <laughs> uh... I mean, as I know, we've been we've been discussing about about that. I think like art is just the uh, the form of like this representation of our conscious in in some ways, and uh, I think it's more like the ripple effect with big issues that makes people think, that makes people feel. So like I think art is is basically like you can't really imagine a world without it because it's basically the essence of this kind of 
subconscious that is reflecting in those many layers of stories and inventing those doom ideas and this idea of extinction have been existed more or less in basically like fiction painting and then it basically comes to like intellectual ideas and of course the more practical scientists comes more or less at the end but they're at, they've been having for a while now but <laughs> but uh the, the fictional idea of, of the end of the world and, and the extinction has been has been happening for obviously a, a long time yeah the artist got there first it was mary shelley the last man's the first like you know novel length depiction so yeah the scientists are like 200 years late <laughs> <laughs> i can't think of a better note to end on thank you both so much for this amazing conversation thank you so much it was really fantastic to to speak to you thomas and jeff it was really wonderful yeah it's been a joy and a pleasure so thank you both yeah i'm jeff chang and you've been on a journey to edge of reason Join us next week when we speak with figurative painter Christina Quarles and writer-activist Sheri Moraga to explore the concept of individualism and how that notion intersects with the purpose of their work. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, like and review on Apple Podcast and help spread the word about our series to other listeners like you. <laughs>